I know we've just been spending some time in prayer, but let's just ask God's blessing as we turn to His Word. Father, again, we thank You for this book. We thank You for the words that are in it. These ancient words that are true and are, pertain to our lives today. Please give us wisdom and understanding as we study this. Help us to know You. Amen. Uh, the kids are dismissed. I think Cindy, Miss Cindy has something in the back. Is she already back there? So if, the kids, if any other kids want to join us, there's a pr- project that they're going to be doing back there. As long as that's okay with your mom and dad. We turn to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be finishing that chapter. You know, over the, your lifespan, you probably have noticed over the years a variety of different styles of leadership, whether it's in the church, in the family, in government, around the world. Generally speaking, uh, leaders tend to gravitate toward a couple different tendencies. On the one hand, there are many who lean toward a more stern approach in the way that they lead. Uh, In the church, you'll find pastors and leaders who spend a great deal of time warning others of their sin and their judgment. And and the tone that can be anywhere from from harsh and condemning toward toward, uh, the more, uh, or it can kind of go to the more moderate expressions of those who firmly proclaim the truth. However, on the other hand, there are many who lean towards an approach of, of reassurance. Leaders such as these, they capitalize on bringing encouragement. Uh, These leaders emphasize a a gracious and gentle approach, and their tone can range anywhere from the extremes of an unlimited approval and acceptance towards towards somewhere in the middle where they capitalize on inspiring hope and reassuring during times of difficulty. As parents, I I think a lot of us can probably see some of those same tendencies in our own lives and our relationship with our children, and we gravitate towards those similar poles, don't we? In fact, God oftentimes puts a, a tender heart with a, a firm hand, and together uh, they, they find a balance with one another as they, uh, as they seek to demonstrate discipline and, and grace, uh, expressing warnings and comfort with their children. And even among leaders in the Bible, you can see similar range of approaches to leadership. You know, while Paul is certainly one of those that he, he, he certainly had the ability to encourage people, and we find him doing so many times, uh, and, and he came to those that were disheartened, and he brought great comfort. I usually think of the Apostle Paul as one who was firm in his teaching and who had no trouble confronting sin. We see him doing that every once in a while, even Peter. And uh, he, he called it out and saw it the way it was. And then you have other leaders like Joseph who was such a a comforter that the disciples gave him a new name and they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so he was always coming alongside others and and lifting them up. I think that you'll find that we need both in the church, in in our parenting, uh, and we need to find an appropriate balance depending on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. There are times when the church needs a a stern wake-up call. We must grasp the the momentous nature of sin and the shortness of the time that we have here on this earth. And like some children who need consistent reaffirmation of truth, so to speak, there are some churches that, that need a heavier dosage of the same. But there are also times when the church needs comfort and gentleness. God's people oftentimes need a a loving, mild hand, especially when they're broken by their sin or when they're suffering through persecution and enduring great trials. 
here at the end of, chapter, of Hebrews chapter 10, just like we saw back in chapter 6, where, where we had a, the third warning passage, in this fourth warning passage, the author demonstrates this pastoral heart that we've seen over and over through this book. And he recognizes the, the audience's need of a firm warning. In fact, this fourth warning that we just looked at last week is probably one of the harshest, firmest, sternest warnings in all of the New Testament, certainly in, in the book of Hebrews. But, but quickly... He shifts gears and he follows up with a tender word of comfort. And we need to understand the drastic consequences of falling away. As we've been looking at how Jesus is superior to all things, the writer of Hebrews says, look, there's no option for you to turn away from Jesus and say, I'm going back to the old life. I'm going back to the old worship. If Jesus is really greater than everything else that this world in any form of worship can offer you, how, how can we turn away from Him and trample Him underneath our feet? And so we have to understand these drastic consequences, but we also need to see the, the hope of our great reward. When we find ourselves sobered by sin, but encouraged when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we come to a place where we are strengthened to endure and press on towards what God has promised us. And that's what we find in our passage today. I'd like us to back up a little bit and remind ourselves of the warning that was delivered in verses 26 to 31. And so read with me those verses as we look at the passage we studied last week. And take heed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. He writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. Is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we, as we looked last week, these six verses are probably some of the sternest words that we found in the entire book of Hebrews, if not the entire New Testament. And indeed, this, this is one of the hardest passages. There, there's been no small discussion, though, over this passage over the past centuries. And there's, there's a variety of different interpretations. A lot of people are asking questions about who, who is he talking about? Are these people saved or are they unsaved? Are they Christians who are sinning or is this consistent sin? There's, there's a lot of discussions regarding how to interpret this passage and, and what the judgment that he's talking about here is. We, we briefly looked at that last week, but I believe that we can all agree on this as we approach this passage as individuals and as we apply it in our own lives. Every single one of us, no matter where you're at, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're considering who He is, or if you've been walking with Him for 20 or 40 or 50 years, all of us need to give careful consideration toward the great weight of sin in all of its forms and all of its entanglements. The warning here is real. And all of us need to humbly examine our own hearts lest we find ourselves deceived by our own sin and thus end up as the objects of God's vengeance. The kind of judgment that's warned of here. This fourth warning, it's, it's a sobering passage, isn't it? Uh, every time I read this, I go, wow. The, 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 the drastic consequences of this. 
But in the next verse, the author of Hebrews softens the blow with, with great skill, and, and he does so in order to bring encouragement to his readers. Uh, so watch how he delivers a, a tender word of comfort to the Hebrews in verse 32 that points them to the reward that they look forward to in the future. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your prosperity, your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What he does here. Is, is he gives them a reminder of their past. And I think that's really important for not only for the Hebrews, but also for you and me. He gives them a reminder of their past. You see, a firm warning like the one in this last passage, these previous verses, a firm warning should, should grab our attention and should remind us of the things which are at stake in this life and in eternity. But one of the, the greatest encouragements that will carry us to the finish line is to consider how God has already carried us so far and how God has carried out His work in our lives in the past. Seeing evidence of God's work in your life should be a great encouragement so that as you look back, you go, well, look at all these things that God did in me. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have persevered. I couldn't have served. I couldn't have done any of these things. But God in His grace empowered me to accomplish these things for His glory. And so watching what He's done in that past and remembering those first works can be a great encouragement as we move forward. For the Hebrews, uh, he actually points them to some of the events that took place early on in their Christian experience. And, and he highlights how they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Uh, the word that he uses here is the, uh, this idea of struggle. It's the only time that this noun is used in the Bible. Uh, it's used in other Greek literature, but he, he, he grabs it here, and it's, it's the Greek word that we get the English word athlete from. And it, it points to this idea of, of a contest, of something that you struggle through, you persist through, not because it's just beating you down all the time and that's all there is to it, but there's a goal at the end. There's a reward at the end. There's a trophy. There's a prize. Have you ever watched an athletic contest that just defined in that moment, what it meant to struggle to the end. You ever seen those? A good football game, a good baseball game, maybe a, a race. Uh, Eli Kaczynski's here. Uh, I always pick on him when we're talking about sports because I hate running. He knows what it means to endure, right? Uh, he sees the end. Uh, I don't know why he does it though. But um, well, you're always here when I talk about sports illustrations, and it just comes so naturally. I just don't even have to think. Well, there's this great contest that illustrates the idea that um, it, this took place at the 2010 Wimbledon Championships. And does anybody remember this? Know what I'm talking about? All right, this might be new for some of you. Normally, I have a attention span when it comes to tennis of about 32 seconds. You know, just back and forth. You know, I look like a robot just twisting my head around in circles. But, but this particular match, I remember, between John Eisner and Nicholas Mayhew. And it caught my attention as I was listening to it on the news. It was notable primarily because it was the longest tennis match in history, and still is because they changed the rules after this tennis match, and so it won't ever be able to happen again. It was, a first, it was the first round of the singles, men's singles match. It began on Tuesday, June 22nd at 6.13 p.m. Three hours later, they had finished the first four of five sets. They were tied. 
But the sun was going down, and so they had to suspend the final set because of fading sunlight. Play resumed the next day at 2 p.m., and it lasted, the fifth set, for seven hours, at which time the sun set again, and the fifth set had to again be suspended. Tied at 59 to 59, they resumed once more at 3.40 the next day, and finally Eisner was victorious just over an hour later. In total, these two struggled against one another for 11 hours and five minutes over the course of three days, one tennis match. Yes, this is the idea of struggle. The idea that Hebrews has gone through, excuse me, this is the idea of what the Hebrews had gone through early on in their walk with Jesus Christ. They had endured a hard struggle. And that's the picture of what they went through when they first became Christians early on in their faith. This hard struggle with sufferings. There's a lot of scholars that believe that the events that, that Hebrews is talking about, uh, he's pointing to the persecution that took place under Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. So, so just uh, less than two decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. Uh, these were the events in Acts chapter 18. Uh, if you remember Aquila and his wife Pris- Priscilla, they had to uh, flee Rome. They had to flee Italy. Uh, the Jews were forced out of the peninsula and, uh, and they were exiled to Corinth. And the author of Hebrews points out four kinds of persecution that they faced in particular in those early days. First, they were in verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Uh, Theatrizo is the word from which we get the word theater. These Hebrew believers were ridiculed. They were mocked. They, they were put on public display in one form or another, whether they were really on a stage or they were just the ridicule of society. These Hebrew believers were ridiculed. They were mocked. Their abuse, both verbal and physical, it made them the object of public humiliation. But they endured the hard struggle. Secondly, we're told that if they were not the object of this public exposure, they were sometimes being partners with those so treated. And you know, part of the, the hard struggle that we endure is to struggle alongside those who are on the front lines receiving the brunt of the humiliation. You see uh, close friends, people you go to church with, or sometimes just people on the other side of the world that are going through this kind of persecution and we, we pray for them, we hurt with them. You understand the brunt of the humiliation that they're facing and, it, and it, you carry that with them. Third, he, he writes that you had compassion on those in prison. This persecution that they endured, it landed many in some of the worst of conditions, wrongly accused of crimes that they didn't commit, or merely just suffering in prison because they chose to follow Jesus, and rather than deny Him and turn from their Lord, they they decided to suffer alongside others. And he talks about how you had compassion on those in prison. There's stories even today of, of people around the world and in countries where people, Christians are imprisoned for their faith, and, and, and other believers what are they doing? They're, they're, they're going into the prison to just spend time with their brothers and sisters in Christ. To sit with them. To talk with them. To bring them food. To care for them. To encourage them. Think about, about uh, when Jesus was at His trial. How, how did His closest friends react? They, they split. Peter denied Him three times. And, and so you have to think through the, the real uh, trials of, of standing with someone that you know is being persecuted for their faith, knowing that, that you're putting yourself on a, a target on your back 
By going into prison and spending time with a believer, you're letting everybody else know, I'm with them. And these Hebrew believers, early on in their faith, not only had they been persecuted for their faith, not only were they made a public ridicule, not only did they suffer with those who were going through the, the, the frontline treatment, but, but they actually went and encouraged one another and spent time with them in prison. And then finally, he reminds them that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Some of these, these Hebrew believers, if not most of them, that were living in, in Rome and, and Italy, they, they lost everything. Everything. The, their, their houses were taken away. They, they were put on the streets. All of their belongings were confiscated by officials and, and their neighbors. Their resources were, were lost. But the Hebrews, early on in their faith, they endured the hard struggle and they did it, we're told, with joy. This doesn't mean that they were excited about their experience. It doesn't mean they watched their house burn down or taken away and went, whoo, this isn't this just, there wasn't this giddy laughter. Joy is, though, an inner attitude of the heart, an attitude, an inner contentment that surpasses outward and temporary expressions of happiness. The Hebrews endured, and even through trials, they were filled with this kind of joy. They, they pressed on through the struggle and the suffering, but but what was it? What was it? And what is it today? What is it that sustains us? What is it that sustained them that gave them this kind of joy? Look at verse, the end of verse 34. We're told that it was their knowledge that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's important for us to understand that, that Jesus never promised us that the Christian life on this side of eternity was going to be easy. Contrary to the message that you hear from many false preachers in America, Jesus never promised us financial prosperity if we follow Jesus. We, we are not guaranteed a life without trials. We're not guaranteed a life without persecution. In fact, I believe that, that we are moving into a season in which, which Christians in, in America are going to face persecution and trials in, in ways that they haven't before for decades. Some may have, but as, as a whole, I think the church is entering a season where, where there are going to be new challenges that we face. And we have to remember that, that the prosperity that we think is ours sometimes was never promised to us. That the peace that, that, we, that we long for and that we enjoy, it wasn't promised to us and it be taken away. And, and, and as that, those things happen, even to the point of death, to the loss of property, towards daily suffering and ridicule, our, our focus remains on the One who is eternal. We're not guaranteed a life without trials, but in fact, Scripture tells us that those who desire to live godly in Christ should expect persecution to come in one form or another. James challenges us to count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials. So again, why do we endure the hard struggle? This, this contest that we are pressing forward to the end. Why do we go through that? Why do we endure that? Why don't we just say, ah, this Jesus stuff, I'm done with it. The old life was better. It was easier. It was more fulfilling. And, and as much as the world calls out those things to us, why don't we trample underfoot the Son of God? One of the reasons that we find here in this passage of encouragement is because we have the assurance of things hoped for. We understand that this life that we are going through today is temporary. And on the other side of eternity, we have a possession of God's promise. 
And so the author of Hebrews, having just laid out this harsh warning in the previous paragraph, he turns now to encourage them. And he reminds them of their faith in the past. And it was a display of God's work in their hearts that should embolden them to walk by faith in the present. I'd like us to just pause for a moment. I'd like each one of us just to get real about our faith and some of the things that we encounter and endure. Most of us at one point or another, we, we find ourselves tempted to ignore the contest. Where we're told uh, somewhere in Scripture, I, I'm going to quote Hebrews there, he, he says somewhere it says, I can't remember what passage it is, but it says that uh, in, in the last days, people's hearts will grow cold. Um, I, th- I think we're seeing a foretaste of that in our own culture. We're, we're seeing people who are discouraged. Uh, throughout the pandemic, you can see how people are turning on one another and um, family members turning on one another. And it, 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 it grows difficult. And, and people are discouraged. And, and people in churches are, are, are sometimes discouraged. And as we lose our focus on things that are eternal and our eyes are not fixed on Jesus Christ our Lord, we become focused on the temporariness of the things around us. And it's easy to, like the rest of the world, for our hearts to grow cold, for, our, for us to become faint in the contest. We find ourselves tempted to sit on the sidelines, let someone else play an 11-hour match. Not for me. Let someone else do this, the Christianity and the hard work in the church. You may be tempted to just give up on the pressures, to, to give in to the pressures around you, to take a seat when there's work to be done. Perhaps you're just tired of defending the truth. Perhaps you're tired of the politicalness that comes into things oftentimes. And so you're tempted to just give up on your walk with Christ as well and, and take the easy way. Perhaps there, there, are, there are so many something else's in your life. Some of those something else is from before you were Christian that are calling out to you for your love and they're calling out to you for your attention. And, and so you've just become complacent in this mediocre Christianity. This middle ground where the work is easy and your faith is shallow. My friends, we are called to compete. We are called to stay in the game. You are called to give it everything. Don't grow discouraged. Don't grow distracted by the temporary things that are around you. And remember that that we are on our way. That the the eternity that is before us is sure. And our reward is eternal. We need to remember two things. First, first, Take the time to recount the work that the Lord did in your heart back in those first days. I love the passage in Revelation. I think he's speaking to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2. And, and in this church, uh, they, they, they were doing a lot of wonderful things. They were pursuing truth. They were doing good works. There was a church that seemed vibrant on the outside. But Jesus challenged them and He says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost your first love for Me. And, the, and, and I love this about Jesus as well. He, he never just says, I have this against you, and then walks away. He says, I have this against you. Now here's what we're going to do about it. And he calls them to change. He calls them to repentance. And he says to them, 
remember your first love and do the first works. It's good counsel. Take the time to recount what the Lord did in your heart back in those first days. Remember your faith, which was lived out, that, 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 and, and excuse me, it was lived out, and, and might that well walked path that you tread, tread through life at that time, might it guide you towards once again going down that road in the present as you remember your first love, Jesus Christ, and as you walk with Him. But the second thing that we're called to do is remember that we're not home yet. In these last few verses, there's this call to endurance. There's a looking to the past so that we can continue in the present, but we also need to keep our eyes focused on the future and what the reward that lies before us so that we might continue on right now. And you see, the world can take everything away from us. They can take everything away from us. But we have a better possession and an abiding one that awaits us at the finish line. And so we keep our eyes to steal the imagery and the words from Hebrews chapter 12, we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We stay in the contest. In the words of Hebrews chapter 10, we endure the hard struggle. We keep on going through the contest knowing the prize at the end. Knowing that the match is going to come to an end and the prize that we have remains for eternity. And so oftentimes we need the harsh warnings of verses 26-31. to 31 that wakes us up to the reality of the the dangers that lie in front of us. And often we need the tender words of the comfort of verses 32-34 to that beckon us to stay in the match, encouraged by God's work in the past and emboldened by our reward in the future. Together, these bold warnings and the tender encouragements, they prepare us for God's exhortation to endure in the here and now. So look at verses 35-39 and as we finish this chapter. He continues on, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This call for endurance means that we we don't throw away our confidence. Uh, The word confidence has this idea of of living openly. Uh, It has this idea of being with other Christians. uh, Of living out your faith in the presence of others. Letting others know that I'm associated with this group of people. I'm associated with the church of Jesus Christ because I love Him. And, And so this confidence is lived out publicly. And the world, it may try to shame us, The enemy may try to destroy us. Life may try to weigh you down. But our reward is in front of us. And so we stay in the contest. We endure through the struggle. We compete. And our competition is not for a golden cup. Our competition is not for a tennis match. Our competition is is not one where um, we're looking for pats on the back and, and other things that only last for this lifetime. But we compete and we struggle knowing that our reward is in heaven. It's already won. It was won by Jesus who bought us with His blood and we endure because it lies in front of us. We endure and we continue to complete complete God's will as we walk in obedience. And, And when the race is done, when the contest is over, we will receive the promise. 
This call to endurance, it includes a reminder of what God's perspective is on the hard struggle. Uh, we, we oftentimes find ourselves waiting. We talk about Jesus returning. And a year later, you, we're talking about Jesus returning. We continue to talk about Jesus returning. And it's easy to start thinking, well, it's a long way off, isn't it? When is He going to return? And we don't live with that idea of the, the, um, the quickness in which He will, will come. Being ready for the time that He will come so that we're not taken off guard and, and left with our eyes closed. This call to endurance includes this reminder of what God's perspective is on this hard struggles though and the waiting. And here the author of Hebrews, he quotes, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk. Anybody's favorite book, Habakkuk? Read it all the time. It's a great book. It's this, it's this dialogue. Habakkuk's this book, it's a dialogue between the prophet and God. And each chapter goes back and forth. And it starts with Habakkuk saying, Lord, haven't you seen what's going on around here? Look at these people. They're walking in sin. They're walking in, in all kinds of filth and destruction. And, and they, they hate one another. They're, they're killing one another. And he's looking at his fellow Jews. And he, and he complains to God and says, God, what are you going to do about this? And God says, Habakkuk, I've got something for you. This is going to be so exciting. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and I'm going to send them in, and they're going to judge Judah. And Habakkuk responds and says, what? <laughs> wait, wait, what? God, God, don't you know that they're worse than we are? How can you bring in the Babylonians? Don't you know what kind of people these, these monsters are? He doesn't use those words exactly, but this dialogue goes back and forth, and, and, and God says, look, I have a solution, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans, and I'm going to do a great work. And I love Habakkuk's response at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 because he says, he basically says, here's what I don't understand, God. It's not this angry questioning of how dare you I shake my fist at God, but it's this questioning of God, I don't understand. How is this possible? What is going on here? Some of these events and the things that you're telling me in your word, they don't make sense to me right now. And I'm trying to understand. I'm humbly coming before you wanting to understand. And Habakkuk's response is, I've said my piece, and now I'm going to sit back on the wall and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to wait for what your response is to me. It's not this response of, of anger towards God, and so therefore, uh, but okay, God, here's my question. Now I'm going to sit back knowing that I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. And, and God's response there in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is one of the most quoted passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, Romans. You ever read the book of Romans? The thesis verse of Romans is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Galatians quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Hebrews quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So it's, it's a very well-known passage in the New Testament community. In the Old Testament, uh, Habakkuk is, is asking these questions and, and God commands the prophet to write down this vision. And he commands Habakkuk to wait for it. He says, the answer is coming, and I want you to wait for it. Write down the vision, but the fulfillment of the prophecy is going to pass even though it seems slow in coming. And, and it didn't come right away. And Habakkuk did wait. The author of Hebrews takes this text of Habakkuk and, and he applies it to the coming of Jesus. He changes a couple words around from the Hebrew, the Hebrew translation. He uses the Greek translation, actually. 
And he applies Habakkuk directly to the waiting that we go through now, not Habakkuk's waiting, but our waiting as we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, look at the quote here. He says, yet a little while. Does it feel like a little while sometimes? You've got to remember God's perspective on this. The way we see it is not always how God sees it. But when it comes, it's going to come. Yet a little while, and the coming one, notice how he's pointing it to Jesus now, will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Romans focuses on the aspect of our faith that leads to justification. Hebrews is focusing on faith that is lived out as a result of the justification that hadn't happened in the past as we look forward to our glorification in the future. We have to remember God's perspective on the hard struggle. While we're in the middle of the match, it goes on and on and on, and you might be getting tired and going, when is this going to end? I'm, I'm exhausted. But He challenges us to keep our eyes focused on our Lord Jesus Christ and understand that in God's timing, it's not far away. And so don't throw away your confidence. Continue to endure and do the will of God. Don't shrink back. And here's the key. My righteous one shall live by faith. You see, the struggle isn't obtained and performed by just doing, doing, doing and accomplishing everything in my own strength. The struggle, this contest, is continued as we walk by faith. You see, when you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were saved by, by being good enough. God took the scales and said, oh, this one fits, right? That's not, no. You're supposed, five of you should have at least walked out by now. <laughs> Salvation is not by your work. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to prove yourself to God. Nothing. You were saved because through faith, you recognize that Jesus Christ took your place on the cross. He paid the penalty that you couldn't pay. He accomplished something that is finished. And through, it's by God's grace, through faith in Christ Jesus alone, that you were saved. And your justification is done. It's been declared. You have been declared righteous. But again, sometimes we get this idea that now I live by works. Now I go through the contest, not by grace, not through faith, but by doing. By accomplishing it all according to my plan and my strength and my works. Is that how you were saved in the first place from your sin? Then why do you expect that you can live that way? To please God. We are called to good works, but they're not done by my own strength and by the power of my own will. They're done as we walk by faith. What did Habakkuk say? My righteous one shall live by faith. Not just be saved by faith, we shall, be, we shall live by faith. There's not one work that I could contribute that saved me. It was faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone. And there's not one work that I can do that is going to please Him today that will enable me to do it by my own power. In the same way, we live by faith. We endure as we continue trusting Christ. 
Our sanctification is a result of walking by faith just as much as our justification was accomplished through faith in Christ Jesus. This next chapter that we're going to look at two weeks from now, uh, Ian Vickers is going to be here next week, so we're going to take a break from Hebrews for one week. Um, in two weeks, we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you know it as the Hall of Faith. And in this chapter, we're going to see example after example after example of people in the Old Testament who were also saved by grace through faith, and they walked by faith. We endure as we continue trusting in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a parade of those who live out their faith. Many of you are looking forward to the parade tomorrow is on July 4th. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a parade like no other. Noah and Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and the list goes on. People who were flawed. People who were sinful. You read that list and you go, why are they in there? I've read stories about that guy. <laughs> Woo! There's some doozies in his life. They were flawed. They were sinful human beings, but they drew near in faith. And the example, their example of faith, faith should encourage us to also run with endurance as we fix our eyes on Jesus. This morning, we're going to conclude with communion. There's an opportunity for us to remember. When we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to remember what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. That, that none of this it was done by my works, by me proving myself to God. It is a gift that was given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ when He sacrificed Himself and He offered His own blood. And He instituted a new covenant so that we have an eternal reward so that we can go through into the Holy of Holies in God's presence Himself. And we can worship Him there. We can offer prayers. And so I'm going to ask the men to come up and join me at this time. We have different names that we call this remembrance by. Uh, sometimes we call it Eucharist. And it's just a, a fancy way of saying giving thanks. Uh, Eucharist means to be seen. Eucharist means to to give thanks. Uh, we call it the Lord's Supper, in memory of of that last night in which he was betrayed, and he sat down with his disciples, and they um, they partook in the Passover meal, and it was at that time that he instituted this. Whatever we call it by, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, uh, I'm forgetting one. Um, we do so because we are remembering what Jesus did. And He commanded us to do this. He said, do this on a regular basis. I want you to remember Me. Remember My sacrifice. Remember My body was broken. My blood was spilled out and I did it for you. He also points out that, that, um, that He Himself will not partake from the fruit of the vine until He comes back again in His glory. And so as we remember what He accomplished on the cross, we also remember that one day He's coming back. And He points to that as well when He talked to the disciples about the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what church you're a member of, no matter where you live, you're invited to participate with us as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ today. You don't have to be a member of DeWitty Free uh, to celebrate communion with us. However, if you are here and you're hearing things about this Jesus and you maybe heard His name all your life, know what He did, but you don't have a relationship with Him. 
you haven't responded to Him in faith. You haven't received His grace yet. That amazing gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here today and you haven't received that gift, rather than participating in something and saying, I- I'm remembering what He did for me, I-, I would ask that you would refrain from taking these elements, but instead receive the gift that He's given to you and receive that eternal life right where you're sitting today, right now. And you can receive Him. If you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you. Any of these men up here would be glad to, to share with you how you can have assurance of eternal life based on what Jesus Christ did for you. We would love to answer any questions you have or discuss it with you and uh, tell you how you can also experience eternal life now. I've asked um, Brian if he would offer a 